This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is COVID frontline care team, also called as CFCT. Today we are joined by one of the prominent leaders of CFCT, Dr. Ravi Ganesh from the Division of General Internal Medicine. Dr. Ganesh is a consultant of medicine and also an assistant professor of medicine, and he has been in the front line of creating CFCT. Welcome, Ravi. Thank you, Ahmed. So Ravi, um, today our discussion is something that you have worked so hard through 2020, what started as a series of favors, as you, as you put it in your write-up. Can you give us an idea, scope of what CFCT is, the COVID frontline care team is, how it came about and what the functions are. The, the anecdote about favors is actually kind of funny because both me and our nurse lead, Darcy Monkey, got phone calls at home from Dr. Hurt, who's the GIM practice chair. And he asked us to help with starting a GIM slash ID pilot for COVID. And uh, we both said yes and came in. And the idea was that leadership at Mayo Clinic had looked at what was happening on the East Coast and how overwhelmed the states of New York and New Jersey had become. And we wanted to do everything in our power to prevent that from happening. For an institution that isn't super well known for its public health, the public health ideas that came out in that initial meeting were phenomenal. We were charged with creating a program to manage people in the community as best as we could so that they would not need be admitted to the hospital. While this was an idea that was floated at a lot of hospitals, the degree of resources that were put at our disposal was actually very significant and it was a priority for leadership. So we put a lot of effort in and we designed this system to notify and educate patients early and then follow up on them during their contagious period to ensure that they were being well taken care of. So give me a timeline. Um, when COVID started, we started getting really, really serious, even though the information started rolling out in December. So now you're January and February. And when did CFCT really, when did the idea kind of coalesce? The timeline is on March 19th, I got the phone call to come in and that was a Thursday. On Friday, we came in and we met with infectious disease. And on the Monday, which was the 22nd of March, we took over all contact of outpatients with COVID. So this moved very rapidly. And it was good to have the support to do things nimbly because it was a situation that nobody actually knew what to do. And we developed best practices as we went using the home parental nutrition model where we closely follow people who are sick and may need escalations of care. And we use that as a model and built from that going out. I'm gonna go over a couple of things, but give, give us an idea. I mean, here you are March 19th and 20th, you're meeting with Dr. Hurt and you have another person with you. And now your program has gone to exactly how many members and doctors and nurses? 
we're cutting down a little bit because um, our numbers have decreased thanks to the public health restrictions that, Do that Governor Walsh placed. At our peak, we had 100 physicians and advanced practice pr providers and about 50 nurses, not to mention the remote monitoring team that has its own staff of RNs as well as desk operation staff and secretaries. So it was a pretty big team. So somebody who's like me learning, trying to find out how a new innovation works. I mean, when you talk about innovation, the implication is that we don't know the outcomes. Nobody has done this. We do have some steps that we have done. What was your population? Was it Rochester? Was it Midwest? Was it uh, the rest of the country? I know it has changed over the, over the time that you have done it. Yeah. So it's evolved and that's kind of the, the thing with innovation is, you know, it's always going to change. When we started, there was a scarcity of good, high quality testing. And at that time, Mayo Clinic was quite possibly the largest testing site in the Midwest. So every test that we did that came through our lab, the positive result came to our team and we proceeded to reach out to these patients and we'd educate them and isolate them. Over time, as testing has shifted, we're not getting the lion's share of the testing from the Midwest, largely because the Minnesota Department of Health has instituted home saliva testing, which is one, convenient, two, it contains illness, and three, it's much more comfortable than a nasal PCR. So we're not seeing those directly. We still get those patients coming into our team if their primary care physician or specialist wants them to be taken care of by a team that's able to do um, remote follow-up and is versed in using telemedicine to take care of this patient population. So give us an idea of how you developed the guidelines on how to stratify these patients. So you are alerted by the lab about a positive test result, and then you make a phone call to the patient and gather some data. And who does it and how is that done? And after that, at which point of time does a nurse step in with education and think that that's enough? At which point do a physician needs to step in? And at which point do you decide that the patient is more than just an outpatient workup and needs to get to the hospital? So the way we thought about this was we made the decisions actionable. And the first actionable decision in this whole setup is, does the patient need to be in the hospital right now? So on that initial call, we made a physician or advanced practice provider do it, and we gave them clear criteria as to what would need to be seen same day in either an urgent care setting or in the emergency department. So that first question of whether they need to be admitted or not was taken care of. In terms of risk gratification, we had early data when we started that suggested that folks who were older and had uh, major medical comorbidities were more likely to develop severe illness. We took that data and created a list of risk factors that we'd look at, and we would assign people a risk category depending on how many of those they had. Since resources were limited, we would assign the highest risk people to follow up with remote monitoring, which is a home kit that checks on vitals and gives you a direct line to nursing staff and the medium risk folks were followed with nursing phone calls and they had a number to call in in case of emergency. Any patient who had continued or worsening symptoms was escalated to the physician team 
and we covered the service 24 hours a day and we still do. And we'd evaluate the patient based on their symptoms and make the decision whether they were okay to stay home if they needed some kind of symptomatic treatment or if they needed to be seen because we thought they were deteriorating. What is uh, masterful in your innovation? It's almost like a wartime footing is how you roll back because there were other operations going on in the clinic. Uh, patients needed to be seen in the clinic. Patients needed to be seen in the hospital and everybody was doing their work. But here was an immense need in a short time to have a well-trained group of several people. It was from medicine and other divisions. So how was your team designed? I mean, how did you decide on how many doctors and what kind of doctors and uh, what kind of nurses, or could you just train anyone? So as the volumes increased, we realized that in order for efficiency, we had to parcel the roles out a little bit. And we kept our more experienced physicians who had been doing this since March on the front end of the work where we did a triage and sorted people by risk factors. And we took care of the people who were most likely to, to be ill. So your organ transplant recipients and your immunocompromised. And then that group also handled all the escalations. The extra work for all the contacts with people who are medium risk or low risk was created into a separate pool. And that pool is where we put people who are training into the system so they could get their skill set without having to make very difficult decisions. And that's where we put people who were loaned to us for various amounts of time. Because we had people on work restrictions from surgery, um, quarantine, isolation, people whose divisions were temporarily not seeing a lot of patients. We got some folks from genetics and from neurology. So this is where we put all the people who were up training with us. We didn't know how long we'd have them. And if they wound up being loaned to us for a more significant time, we'd move them over to the core box because they'd have all of that experience and they'd be able to handle the complicated patients with us. Can you give us a scope of what your team has accomplished till date, as far as the number of patients and what have been the outcomes? So to date, we've treated over um, 20,000 patients remotely. And in terms of our outcomes, there was a paper that was published by the Mayo Clinic proceedings very recently that showed the Mayo Clinic outcomes. And we are doing better than national in that our mortality rate is um, only 1.1% across the Mayo Clinic systems in Arizona, Florida, and Midwest. The national mortality rate is about 5%. So we, we are doing better. And we can't claim all that credit from the CFCT because you know, we also do a lot, couple of things with systems and patients to make sure we have the right therapeutics, right staffing, and we aggressively get people into the intensive care unit rather than do it later. So there's a lot of factors at play here, but we like to believe that we contributed to this decreased mortality rate by getting people in sooner. I know you're probably looking at the data from different angles. Have you looked at uh, cost savings, life saved? I mean, already this is a huge jump from 5% mortality rate to 1.1% immense life savings um, or what I would call the additional life save because of CFCT. Yes, um, there's some work undergoing in the current Center for Innovation to figure out what we saved in terms of lives, as well as what we saved in terms of prevented infections. 
uh, one of the charges that we got pretty early in this process was to do our best to keep the campuses safe. So anyone who tested positive for appointments on campus, we really tried to make sure we got to that patient early, prevented them from coming on campus and rescheduled them. And by doing so, the amount of COVID infected people on the campuses was less or acquired at work transmission rate was significantly lower than seen nationally as well. And the occupation health folks have that data. So I don't have exact numbers as to as to the effect of having a CFCT, but um, I think that we did a pretty good job there. Well, I'm reading a, a quote, quote directly from Dr. Ryan Hurt, who said that we've had county officials say that there are people alive because we can monitor them and proactively get them the care they needed when symptoms worsen. I know you have received accolades within Mayo and outside of Mayo, and I know you're a very humble person, but can you give us an impact of the social impact? Uh, I know we all breathe easy. I'm in the front line, not as much as you, but I've had to contact CFCTRNU directly for numerous permutation and combinations of questions uh, that come from a COVID patients. And now with the vaccination that also comes, have you had an idea or kept a track of how many thousands of questions uh, you guys have looked at over the last uh, eight months? We have a good idea of that. One of the biggest things we've had to battle with this pandemic is misinformation. Patients want to know more, but they get mixed messages from various media outlets as well as the public health departments, and things aren't written very clearly for them to understand. So we always have questions about, you know, what's my personal risk? What about isolation? What about the folks in my family? And the requirements from employers have also been kind of slow to change, even though the evidence has changed as well. And up until recently, we were battling a pretty big amount of employers who wanted a negative test to return to work, even though it hasn't been standard of care for a while. So we've done a lot of work in that arena with a public awareness and helping people not only stay out of work when they're sick, but also help them to return to work, even if they have a positive test that's not associated with a clinical infection. We've gotten a lot of compliments. We've gotten a lot of people who were just palpably relieved when they talked to us on the phone and we answered the questions that they had because a lot of people had no really good way to get information. This was magnified in our limited English proficiency patients who primarily speak a foreign language, live in smaller communities and aren't well connected and often don't have good access to healthcare. So we, we reached a lot of people and I think that bringing them awareness of how serious the condition was and how to keep their families safe had ripple effects in the healthcare system. You mentioned something which caught my attention and is learning on the fly. You started with two people, went to hundreds, and then your partnerships, which was evolving, constantly monitoring what the CDC says, your partnership with Minnesota Department of Health and the Connected Care, who did provide with all the technologies that you needed. Could you talk about, what do you mean by nimble? I can see a lot of splinters fire, you know, going up and fires being put down, but looks like you have to do a tremendous job keeping all these variable and these different stakeholders who are all with good intentions, 
might have different guidelines they are following or different work strategies they are following. And you all had to be one happy family and uh, work together. What was your experience when you had to work with these different uh, big stakeholders? So working with stakeholders is always interesting. And the uh, psychology of working within an organization is all, has always been interesting to me because every group is focused on their particular angle and their needs that need to be met. I think being a generalist and being used to coordinating care for patients helped me to coordinate care for the institution with all the varying groups that came in. And it allowed us to take constructive feedback from IPAC, for example, and say, hey, that's good. This is what the Office of Access Management is saying. There's a little bit of a disconnect here. Let's get everybody back to the table and we all kind of work it out. And being a small team, we were able to rapidly change our workflows. We were able to rapidly change our documentation. And we were able to train people very quickly to these changes that we made. And if you ask my, my nurses, they'll say there were weeks where we changed the process three times because we tried it and it wouldn't work the way we wanted. And we'd rapidly cycle it to make it work better. And that was where having a team composition that included both people with long-term vision and people who could see the details and the minutiae that we needed to make sure that processes worked all the way through was very, very, and we're very careful to select people on both ends of that spectrum. So as, as you become successful, you don't define success. We define the success for you. You're you are actually entrenched in working. And of course you do measure the outcomes later on, but we like, what we are the cheerleaders who are, who've been benefited by CFCT have found it to be successful right from the get-go. But a lot more is expected of you now that the COVID has gone, it's really a, become a long hauler. Tell me the newer task that uh, your team has been challenged now to say, well, you're happy with your contact tracing, happy with your monitoring, but uh, here's some new avenues that we expect you guys to do. And what has your experience in with CFCT going forwards? How is that experience going to help you with those tests, new tests? Yeah, so one of those came pretty recently in November. So in November, the FDA approved emergency use authorization for these new monoclonal antibody products. And... Uh, I got a call out of the blue from Dr. Razanable, who was leading that. He said, hey, we need to do this quickly and we need to do this outpatient. So can you help me? So we got together and we built a process starting on a Thursday that went into practice on the Monday to create infusion therapy centers, uh, to screen eligible patients, consent them, and get them infused safely. Uh, that program has grown, and I'm happy to report that as of today, we've infused over 1,900 patients in the Midwest region and over 2,600 across the enterprise. And that is one of the, the applications of, of being able to build these quick teams to treat a COVID-positive patient in the outpatient setting. And we've seen a decrease in admissions and a decrease in mortality as a result of that interaction. The second uh, thing that's coming up is that I don't want to say that we're at the cusp of COVID settling out, but with the vaccines on the horizon and better therapeutics, 
I think we now need to start paying a little bit more attention to the folks who've been suffering in silence, these uh, post-COVID syndrome people, because we've seen that people with COVID tend to have symptoms for a long time after. And it seems to be a spectrum where some people get better at six weeks, some at three months, some still have symptoms six months later. And once again, we're looking at our colleagues in New York, which is where uh, the pandemic hit first. But their long haulers are now at nine months. A significant amount still have symptoms. In order to treat that, um, we kind of are doing the same thing we did for COVID. We've done a review of the literature and there's not much on post-COVID syndrome. And we start to look at our patient population to identify what symptoms they have and who tends to get it. And we're applying lessons learned from our previous practices with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and the consultative um, medicine clinic to try to create a process where we can work these patients up effectively and get them a treatment plan that may help them recover some amount of function and get back to their daily activities. Do you find that once you've done a, you roll out an innovative process, if you're doing a big innovation, and does that experience help you kind of get on board the other projects which come up, uh, which could have been by itself challenging, but now that you have experience at rolling out a program, you're kind of faster and more nimble with other projects? Absolutely. I, I understand why people go to business school. Uh, it's a process and it's a skill set that you aren't innately born with. Rolling out the CFCT, I got a lot of help from senior leadership who said, you know, you're going to need to have an administrator take care of the, where the money is coming from and staffing. You're going to need to have people on from scheduling. You're going to need to have people on from secretarial pools. You're going to need to have people who can help you do all the things that will otherwise overwhelm a, pre, a, a good project. And having worked that process out and working with that many teams, every time we start a new project, we make sure to have the right people on board at the get-go. And for this most recent um, post-COVID clinic, we, we actually are doing a pretty interesting thing where we have a visioning team that incorporates multiple disciplines. And we're trying to make sure that everybody has input from the get-go so that we don't wind up having to do multiple iterations while still pushing forward with getting the post-COVID clinic up and running. Here's a 30,000 foot question for you. What does it take to be leading this kind of a program? What kind of characteristics are you looking in your team members, especially in the leadership team? What kind of skill sets should they have? Personality, psychology, or just do they have to be business trained? Because most, most of us are not business trained. We, are, we, are, we learn on the fly, but what are the characteristics you are looking for as in a leader? If, if I may, I'll use a football analogy. You have a lot of people who are great football players and we have a lot of people who are great physicians, but they don't have that command of a team or that ability to lead that will allow them to become effective coaches. And uh, the further you go up in leadership, the less of the actual work on the ground you're doing, the more leadership and coaching you're doing. And you have to make big decisions for your entire team and you also have to pass that down in ways that everybody feels heard and you also have to accept the feedback coming back up. In order to do that effectively, you need to have really good communication skills and you need to have the ability to accept that you may be wrong, 
and uh, accept that everybody's input is valid because there are going to be aspects of this whole process that you have no direct visualization of. And there have been many times where I've been blindsided by things I don't actually touch, like stuff that winds up on the scheduling end. And I wouldn't have thought about it. I'm a physician, I work in my sphere, but being able to take that feedback and realizing that every action you take has ripple effects going out is the major step that I've personally taken and what I look for in people who I think have huge potential. It's the ability to listen to everyone and take those things into consideration and then deliver it back in a cohesive manner. Well, what can I say, Dr. Ganesha? You have done more than you have listened, you have delivered, your team has given such a fabulous uh, service to the Mayo Clinic and to the thousands of patients, 20,000 patients and counting. And several of my patients are so very grateful, but looks like uh, in a way you're describing, you, you have become transformed yourself. You have transformed yourself in the process. You're probably not the same Ganesh Ravi that I knew, uh, playful, happy, a Green Bay fan, which I don't like that much. But uh, personally, uh, you've had such a tremendous growth and you, uh, with you, so many other colleagues, uh, you've trained and they've grown with you. And I thank you for our leadership. Mayo Clinic thanks you. This has been a tremendous, tremendous uh, experience for us, which we got to see and learn from ground zero. Is there any parting thoughts for you for younger physicians, especially general internists who are wondering, what are my skill sets? Why am I joining general medicine? Uh, I don't, I'm not one of the famous logists. I don't do this logy or that logy. But what is the scope of general medicine in particular in the coming era? Uh, you mentioned about leadership, team management. How do you see from your experience, um, what can somebody who is interested in taking general medicine as a career for the next 30 years like you have, like I have done, and you are probably going to do yourself, what would you advise them? Uh, general medicine is for people who are patient-centric and want to take care of that patient no matter what happens to them. If they're going to surgery, if they have a terminal illness, if they have something acute that needs to be treated. And for people who choose general medicine, we tend to have that 10,000-foot view where we can kind of watch and coordinate what's happening with that patient. And that ability translates to other things. And I think that on multidisciplinary teams, having that generalist on there as that kind of quarterback to bring all the folks, all the various perspectives back to the patient and provide that anchor is kind of the core of what we do. And I think that that translates nicely into uh, leadership efforts, education efforts, and research efforts as we are able to put that whole picture together for the rest of the institution. So I think that, you know, I would advocate for the best and brightest minds who want to take care of patients globally to come to general medicine because this is the place where you can do that. With that, we will end. I, you can't top your last comment. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ravinder Ganesh. Dr. Ravinder Ganesh uh, is a consultant in medicine and our leader of the COVID frontline care team. We have we learned a lot about innovation and newer strategies on how to take it further for other challenging problems. I thank all of you for listening 
today's podcast. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back next week.